Let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word. James 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Let us go now to Psalm 19. The title of this psalm is, To the Choir Master, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward." Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. God has spoken. I want to think about that statement for just a moment. For it is in fact the starting point of our faith and of our religion. We believe that God has spoken. By God we mean the one true God, the triune God, the creator of heaven and earth. And when we say that He has spoken, we mean that He has revealed Himself to us. He has told us something about who He is, who we are, and what He requires of us. God has spoken. He has revealed Himself to us. And He has made us in such a way that we are able to hear His voice. This too is a marvelous truth to consider. 
God has spoken and we have the ability to perceive and receive His revelation. This is a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. He has made us in such a way that we may hear His speech, we may receive His revelation. It should be clear to all that if God had not spoken, that is, if He had withheld all forms of revelation from us, then we could not know Him, for He is above us and He is beyond us. We would be left to wander in the dark concerning our knowledge of God and also our knowledge of self. But because God has spoken, then He may be truly known. And how has God spoken? In two ways primarily. One, He has revealed something of Himself to us in the world that He has made. God created the world in such a way that the creation itself testifies concerning Him. And two, He has revealed Himself to us by giving us His Word. He has spoken through the prophets, through Christ who was and is the eternal Word of God come in the flesh, and through the Scriptures. And so God has provided us with two books then. We have the world book and we have the word book. These two books, the book of creation and the book of Scripture, are are not at war with one another. No, both of them proclaim the truth concerning our Maker. And the Christian is to happily read both of these books, the world book and the word book. And Psalm 19 is all about this. This psalm is a celebration of and response to God's revelation in nature and in Scripture. In this psalm, David rightly handles both the book of nature and the book of Scripture, and then he responds to God's revelation of himself, saying, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Perhaps when I was reading Psalm 19, you noticed that it felt a little bit like two psalms squished together into one. Uh, Verses 1 through 6 are about the creation. Uh, As we read verses 1 through 6, that is where our minds go, to God's creation, in particular to the sky above. And that is how the psalm begins in verse 1, saying, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork." And then all of a sudden in verse 7, the focus shifts to the Scriptures, saying, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, etc. The transition from from the sky to the Scriptures is really very abrupt in this psalm. So what is the theme that holds Psalm 19 together? The theme is this, Revelation. The psalmist is here contemplating God's revelation, first in creation, and then secondly in the Holy Scriptures. And then we have his response to God's revelation in verses 12 through 14. And so there you have the structure of this beautiful psalm. God reveals himself first in the sky, and then he says, God reveals himself in the Scriptures, and then finally we have the response of the psalmist. Let us first consider verses 1 through 6 and this wonderful truth that God speaks to us through the sky. He reveals something of himself to us through the world that he has made. The sun, the moon, and the stars, indeed all of creation, speak continuously to us concerning 
our Maker. This is a wonderful and marvelous truth for us to consider, brothers and sisters. God speaks to us even through the sky. The physical creation may be divided into three worlds. We may speak of the world of the oceans, the world of the land, and the world of the heavens. And the heavens themselves are varied, and that is why we refer to them in the plural. There is the heaven where the birds fly and the clouds reside. And there is the heaven of the sun, moon, and stars. And the scriptures even speak of of a third heaven. And when they speak of the third heaven, uh, they speak of that invisible realm where the glory of God is uh, most particularly manifest and where the angels of God dwell and worship Him uh, day and night. We we can only imagine what the glory of, of that realm is like, what the glory of the third heaven is like. But the glory of the second heaven the heaven of the sun, moon, and stars, may be of some help to us. All of God's visible creation, the heaven of the sun, moon, and stars, it's most glorious. And it is the heaven of the sun, moon, and stars that provides us with the light by which we may contemplate the rest of God's visible creation, the oceans, the land, and also the first heaven. And I think this is why the psalmist gives attention, particular attention, to the starry sky in this psalm. That The heavens, the second heaven where the sun, moon, and stars reside, are are most glorious. Uh, They do display the glory of God in in a most marvelous way. And they do also illuminate the eye of man so that we might consider the glory of God in all of creation. And so that is where his attention is fixed in Psalm 19. God speaks to us through the sky, and so we might ask, what does the sky have to say? What does the sky have to say to us? Verse 1 tells us, saying, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So there are two statements here, and these two statements mirror one another, but they are not exactly the same. The second statement kind of advances the first. First of all, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens, and soon it will become clear that David has the sun, moon, and stars in mind, they declare something. This word means to recount or to communicate the glory of God. God is glorious. He is infinite in being and perfection. He is a most pure spirit. He is invisible, immortal, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, and almighty. His wisdom and power are infinite. He is most holy, most pure. And though we may try, we find that human language cannot really describe the glory of the infinite one. In other words, our words under the weight of the pressure. Whenever we try to describe the divine, we we find that that our words are not quite adequate. They can kind of get at it, but they cannot really communicate the glory of the eternal God. And I do think that the same is true with the heavens of the visible creation. They declare the glory of God, but they cannot tell the whole story. Even the sun, moon, and stars, as glorious as they are, only declare God's glory. In other words, they do not display it for what it is. They can only testify to the glory of 
of God Almighty. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the second phrase here, the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Handiwork, I think that is an interesting word. God does not have hands, you do understand this, right? And yet, the creation is called His handiwork. And this illustrates what I've just said about the inadequacy of our language. When it comes to God and the works of God, we must use language that we are familiar with. And sometimes this involves attributing human characteristics to the divine. We have hands. We make things with our hands, but God does not have hands. And yet His creation is called His handiwork. Why? For He made this world. We know that He spoke this world into existence out of nothing, and then He, like a skilled craftsman, formed and fashioned it into this orderly world in which we now live. And here the psalmist says that the sky above proclaims, that is, reports or makes known His handiwork. The heavens themselves are God's handiwork, But the heavens, that is to say the sun, moon, and stars, do also illuminate the rest of God's creation so that we might perceive it. We do not dwell in utter darkness, brothers and sisters. Have you ever been thankful to God for that fact? We do not dwell in utter darkness. No, even on the darkest of nights, the stars are still there to illuminate the created world. And each day the sun rises in the east to illuminate the earth so that we might clearly perceive the world that God has made. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims or reports or makes known His handiwork. I think we should remember that David, who is the author of this psalm, was a shepherd before he was a king. And so David was very familiar with the sun, moon, and stars, therefore. He spent many nights out in the field gazing up at the stars. Can you imagine it? There, David the shepherd, keeping watch over the flock on a dark night, gazing up into the marvelous scene above. He observed the same constellations that you and I observe. Isn't that Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? And though he lacked the scientific insights into the expansiveness of the cosmos, he could perceive that space was very deep and full. Have you ever looked up at the stars on a a very, very dark night? And and you see the stars themselves, the individual ones, you know, that that are pronounced. But on a very dark night, you can look up into, up into space, as we call it, and you can almost sense that there's a depth to it, you know. There, there's light out there that you can't really distinguish, you know, one star from the next, but there it is. And, and, and David uh, must have contemplated uh, the, the, the starry sky, and he must have seen that the universe is very deep and, and full. Certainly he noticed the orderliness of the stars in the heavens and the consistency of the planets as they moved across the sky night after night and from season to season. And undoubtedly, David felt the same sense of awe as we feel when he looked up at the stars on a clear and dark night. And he felt the same sense of relief that we feel when the warmth and light of the sun rose upon him in the morning. We are kind of oblivious to this, I think, as we 
live within our very comfortable homes, you know, and we are warm all night long, sleeping in our nice and comfortable beds. But imagine sleeping out in the field and feeling the chill of, of the nighttime air, you know, descend upon you. Um, if you've ever been in a situation like that, you cannot wait for the sun to rise and to bring you warmth. And so David must have contemplated these things very deeply. He was very much aware of God's creation, and in particular the sky above, the sun, the moon, and the stars. You and I have a better sense of what these heavenly bodies are than David did physically speaking, you know. With all of the technological advancements, we know what these heavenly bodies are made of. We know that they are very, very far away. We know that they are very, very large. But I would guess that David understood the spiritual significance of the heavenly bodies more than most modern men do. I'm afraid that the advancements made in science have caused us to look upon the heavenly hosts in a merely scientific and natural way. We may marvel at the expanse, we may marvel at the size and the power, but many in our modern age have forgotten that these heavenly bodies are preachers. That is what they are. These heavenly bodies are preachers. They are messengers or angels who constantly proclaim the glory of God who made the heavens and the earth and everything within. These heavenly bodies are preachers. They are not divine. No, they are in fact created things. David knew this. But they were created in order to testify to the glory of God. I think it is very good for us to scientifically consider the natural world, but the natural world must also be considered theologically. For it was created for this purpose, to declare the glory of our Maker. So what do the preachers in the heavenly realm have to say? What do the preachers in the heavenly realm have to say? Day and night they say, there is a God and He is glorious. There is a Creator and He is powerful and mighty. He is a God of order he is faithful. He is to be worshipped. This is what the heavenly preachers say. And what language do these heavenly preachers speak? Verse 2 and 3 tell us, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So day to day pours out speech. When, when the sun rises, again it illuminates the earth so that we might hear what all of creation has to say concerning the glory of the Creator God. But the creation does not only speak to us during the day, does it? No, in this psalm we see that night to night reveals knowledge too. The stars of the second heaven are always there, but during the day they are hidden from our sight, being concealed from our eyes by the light of day. But when the darkness of night descends, they appear. And we are able to hear once again the declaration of the glory of God through the stars of heaven. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So the glory of God is revealed in the light of day, and the glory of God is also revealed in the darkness of night. And I suppose there is a profound metaphor built into creation here concerning the glory of God revealed in darkness and in light, through good and evil through judgment and through grace. But to answer the question, what language do these heavenly preachers speak? The psalmist says, there is no speech, nor are there words 
whose voice is not heard. In other words, these heavenly preachers do not preach to the ear of man, but to the eye. They do not preach with words. Their message is not a message that is heard, therefore. No, their testimony is seen. These preachers engage the mind and the heart of man, not with words, but with images. Their language is universal, therefore. The confusion of the languages at Babel is no problem for the preachers of heaven. For they do not speak to the soul of man through the ear, but through the eye. And though the peoples of this earth speak and understand different languages, all perceive the same world with their eyes. Have you ever thought about that? All the peoples of the earth wake up, they look out upon the world, and they see the same world that we see. They look up to the heavens, and they see the same heavens that, that, we, that we see here. And so, the language barrier is no problem for the preachers of heaven, for they speak not to the ear, but, but to the eye. Who hears these preachers of heaven then? Who hears them? The answer is everyone does. Verse 4, Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Everyone hears this preaching. Everyone has access to the book of creation. Everyone is exposed to this general and natural revelation concerning the glory of God, for all live in God's world. Everything that is said here concerning God's natural and general revelation is brought to a grand conclusion from the end of verse 4 through verse 6, with all attention being given to the sun, to the sun. From our perspective, the sun, and I am speaking of the sun that, that, that dwells in the sky, the sun is the most magnificent of, of all the heavenly bodies. The sun is radiant. It gives light so glorious that the eye of man cannot gaze upon it, and yet its heat is a comfort. It gives light. It gives life to us. In verse 4c we read, In them that is in the heavens, He, that is God, has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." Many idolaters have worshipped the sun, moon, and stars. But the scriptures tell us that they are not gods, they are created things. They are not to be confused with the creator of all things. And, and here David portrays the sun as an obedient creature. That is what the sun is. An obedient creature, a faithful minister of God. Day after day the sun runs the course that God has established for it as a minister of God the sun is here compared to a groom who rises with joy to go and take his bride. The sun is like a strong man who runs its course with joy. So day after day the sun is faithful to run the course that God has established for it to give light and life to the world that God has made. There is nothing hidden from its heat. All may see and feel the testimony of the sun regarding the glory of God. All have access to God's revelation and creation. All hear the voice of the sun, moon, and stars. All may perceive that God is glorious and that God is to be worshipped. And in fact, Paul draws upon this truth in Romans 1 where he teaches that all will stand guilty before God for rejecting the testimony of creation, saying, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For 
His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I'm sure that David had Psalm 19 in mind as he penned these words. Psalm 19, along with many other scripture texts, provide the theological foundation for for Paul's words here. He, He is here saying that all have access to God's world book. All hear the voice of God's preachers as they proclaim the glory of God from the second heaven. But all suppress this truth in unrighteousness. All will stand guilty before God on the last day, therefore. You watch men and women do this all the time. Men and women living in God's world, looking up at the stars, some very intelligent people. Uh, analyze the, the solar system and they analyze God's cosmos. They, they spend so much time and energy analyzing these things and, and then very intelligent people walk away from it and say, there is no God. That is what the scriptures call a fool. They suppress this truth in unrighteousness. The, the message of general revelation, which is what we are talking about here, cannot save, friends. The sun, moon, and stars declare the glory of God, but they do not declare the gospel of salvation. Yes, God may use His world book to drive men and women to His word book, where salvation through faith in the Messiah is revealed. And yes, God's world book does agree with God's word book, so that the faith of those who are in Christ may be strengthened as they see the testimony of Scripture and how it agrees with the testimony of creation. But salvation through faith in the Messiah is not revealed in the stars. No, the heavens declare the glory of God. And while it is true that those who are right with God rejoice in and seek the glory of God, for the one who stands guilty and in their sins, the glory of God is a terror to them. And this is why men and women suppress the truth of creation in unrighteousness. When they look up at the starry skies and they see the glory of God manifest there, it is not a comfort to them as it is to us who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. But instead, it is a terror to them. The glory of God is manifest. The power of God is manifest before them. And because they are in their sins, they seek to push that testimony to the side and out of their sight. As I have said, some very smart people come to some very foolish conclusions after considering the creation. And this is due to the sin that is in their hearts. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That is Psalm 14, 1. In verse 7, the focus shifts from the revelation we receive through creation to the revelation we receive through the Scripture. Yes, it is true, God speaks to us through the sky, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, but God speaks to us ever more thoroughly and clearly through the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures reveal God most fully. The Scriptures teach us the way we should go. The Scriptures show us our sin and misery. And the Scriptures reveal that the Lord is our rock and our Redeemer. That is how this psalm concludes, you will note. The way of salvation is put before us in the Holy Scriptures. You will notice that in verses 7-9, through many terms are piled up, all of which refer to the Holy Scriptures. Law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules. 
Each of these six nouns refer to the Scriptures in all of their variety. The Scriptures are even called the fear of the Lord, for this is what the Scriptures are to produce within the heart of man, reverential fear. And each of these nouns are said to be of the Lord. That means they come from God. The law that David is rejoicing in is not just any law, but it is the law of the Lord. He is celebrating the testimony of the Lord, etc. Each of these six nouns are paired with an adjective, a word that describes them. The law of the Lord is perfect or blameless. The testimony of the Lord is sure or verified. The precepts of the Lord are right, that is to say, morally upright or just. The commandment of the Lord is pure or radiant. The fear of the Lord is clean or genuine. And the rules of the Lord are true. They are true and dependable, is what the psalmist is here saying. And you will also notice that each of the six nouns are paired with a verb, which describe what the Word of God does for man, or what it is within itself. The scriptures, we learn, revive the soul, make wise the simple, Rejoice the heart, enlighten the eyes, endure forever, and are altogether righteous. And so it should be clear to all that David has placed a much higher value on the Scriptures than on the sky as it pertains to the benefit they bring to man's soul. Does the sky bring a benefit to man's soul? Certainly it does. They proclaim the glory of God. And they may be used by God to produce within us reverential fear. But as it pertains to the benefit that these forms of revelation bring to man's soul, David places a much higher value on the Scriptures. The book of creation is to be read. The book of creation is to be appreciated. Indeed, the people of God must learn to see the glory of God in creation. But the Scriptures are of surpassing worth. The Scriptures are perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And it is the Scriptures that are able to revive the soul of man. The Scriptures are able to make wise the simple. The Scriptures rejoice the heart. The Scriptures enlighten the eyes. Indeed, they will endure forever as altogether righteous. And this is why David says, More to be desired are they, that is, the Scriptures, than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Do you have the same view of the Holy Scriptures, brothers and sisters? Do you see them truly as more precious than gold and more savory uh, than even honey and the honey of the honeycomb? I hope that we do. Should the Christian read God's world book? Yes, but not without his word book. For while the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, the Scriptures reveal Him much more thoroughly and clearly. It is through the Scriptures and not the stars that we learn that God is triune. It is through the Scriptures and not the stars that we learn that He is the one and only. It is the Scriptures that tell us of all of His perfections. And it is the Scriptures that reveal how it is that we are to relate to Him, worship Him, and serve Him. And that is what David says in verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The Word of God is to be believed, and it is to be kept, brothers and sisters. The Word of God is to be believed, 
and it is to be kept. To quote James again, which was read at the beginning of this sermon, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And a little bit later in that same passage, he says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And then again, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So we are to cherish God's holy word. We are to read it, we are to believe it, and we are also to keep it. Listen again to verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Friends, those who are faithful will contemplate the Scriptures and they will seek to obey them from the heart. This is what the true believer will do. They will contemplate the Scriptures. They will hear God's Word and seek to obey God's Word from the heart. David knew this. And he also knew his sin and how prone he was to go in the wrong way. And so he concludes this psalm with a prayer to the Lord. He prays to the Lord, his rock and redeemer, to forgive him of his sins and to lead him in the right way. I think this is a marvelous conclusion to this psalm. After God's general revelation and after God's special revelation is considered, David responds in a most marvelous way. He prays to the Lord and his prayer begins in verse 12 with the question, Who can discern his heirs? In other words, who among us can perceive all of the ways in which we have gone wrong? Sometimes we sin and we know it. But oftentimes we sin and we know it not. If God's law requires us to love the Lord our God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, and if sin is any lack of conformity unto or violation of the law of God, then it should not surprise us to learn that we sometimes sin and do not even know it. We come short of God's law continuously and are oftentimes oblivious to it. We are often blind to our own sin. And so David prays that the Lord would declare him innocent from hidden faults. Now David is not here dismissing the seriousness of hidden or unperceived sin. Instead he is simply acknowledging that they exist. We often sin unwittingly or unknowingly. And David cries out for mercy and grace. Declare me innocent from hidden faults, he says. David knew that he needed to be declared innocent from his sins. Even from his hidden sins. Sins that he was unaware of. As David considered God's law, what was the first thing he was moved to do? He confessed his sin and fled to the Lord for refuge. And in verse 13 he says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Presumptuous sins are, are arrogant sins. They are not sins committed mistakenly or unwittingly or unknowingly. No, they are sins committed with a high hand. They are sins committed in willful defiance against the Lord. All sin is sin. And all sin is serious. Indeed, the wages of sin, all sin, is death. But there is a great difference between sins committed by accident due to some ignorance or weakness and sins committed 
purposefully and willfully. In fact, the Law of Moses distinguishes between the two in Numbers 15, 27 and following, which says, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You will notice here that even these unintentional sins are sins that require atonement. They are not to be dismissed as unimportant or, or, or without seriousness. They are serious sins that must be atoned for. But then I continue in Numbers 15, "...you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people." What is described here is, is the person who, who, who sins willingly, knowingly, arrogantly as an act of rebellion against God. And David's prayer is that sin, a presumptuous sin, would not have dominion over him. And I think this should remind us of what Paul the Apostle says in Romans 6.12 and following, "...let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace." Those in Christ will continue to struggle with sin. We all come short of God's holy law in thought, word, and deed. But sin shall not have dominion over God's people, for God's people have been brought from death to life. They have been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Christian ought not to go on committing sins of presumption, high-handed, arrogant, and, uh, and intentional sins. And by the way, this is how we are to distinguish between sins deserving of church discipline, and here I have in mind formal church discipline, and those that are to be covered with love. We all sin. We come short of God's law in many ways. And when we sin, we are to turn from it and to Christ. But when one who professes faith in Christ walks in sin, knowingly and willingly, they are to be cut off from the people of God. They are to be put out of the congregation, barred from the Lord's table, and considered a sinner. If a person has been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit, if they've been washed, if they've been brought from life to death, then that person will seek to serve Christ with their life. But if they remain in their sins, then it will be no surprise to us that they continue to walk in darkness. But the Scriptures say you will know them by their fruit. And so, brothers and sisters... God's people do sin. We sin unintentionally. We sin due to some weakness or, or, or temptation. But if you are a child of God, that will grieve your heart and you will turn from it. But there are many who walk in this world and they sin presumptuously. They sin with a high hand in arrogance. They live in rebellion against God, rebellion against God and His law. Uh, David was aware of this distinction 
All sin is sin. All sin is serious. But sins of presumption are particularly heinous. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, David says. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I I take the words, then I shall be blameless to correspond to David's request in verse 12. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And the words, then I shall be innocent of great transgression to correspond to his request in verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Those presumptuous sins are great transgressions. Verse 14 concludes this psalm not with a prayer for forgiveness, but with a prayer for strength. David wants to have the strength to offer up to God a fitting sacrifice of obedience. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I want for you to notice just a few things about this concluding prayer. One, David's prayer was offered up to the Lord as his rock and redeemer. Though David desired to keep God's law, he knew that he had not. He needed a redeemer. He needed a savior. The Lord was his Redeemer. The Lord was his Savior. And he called the Lord his rock. And I think this echoes back to the gospel that was proclaimed in Psalm 2, which said, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Lord and the Lord's anointed Son were David's rock and refuge. Though David loved God's law, he was no legalist. In other words, uh, he was not trusting in his own righteousness. No, his hope was in the Redeemer that God would provide. Two, David understood that God's law was to be applied even to the heart. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. A Christian is to keep God's law from the heart. We are to honor the Lord even in the inner man, in the heart and in the mind. For from within, says Christ, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So here Christ is teaching us that we are to keep the heart, that we are to obey God from the heart. Three, though David loved God's law, and though he desired to keep it from the heart, he dared not move forward in his own strength. No, instead he prayed to the Lord, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This whole psalm concludes with this wonderful plea. Lord, help me. Lord, strengthen me so that I might honor you even in the inner man. And this should be our prayer each and every day, brothers and sisters. In fact, it will be our prayer if we pray the prayer that Christ taught His disciples, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's stated differently here. 
But when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are, in so many words, saying, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You are my rock, you are my redeemer. So, brothers and sisters, let us read the books that God has given to us. Let us be sure to study them. Let us read the book of creation, which, which declares so wonderfully the glory of God. And let us also be eager to devour the Scriptures. For God has revealed to us there, and so too is His will for us, along with the way of salvation. And having read the book of Scripture, let us rise up with the intent to obey, trusting always in Christ the Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. For in Him we have the forgiveness of sins, and in Him we have the strength that we need to live the life that He has called us to, to the glory of His name. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that all who have heard these words would indeed be found in Christ, trusting in Him and in Him alone for the forgiveness of sins. You are the rock. You are the Redeemer. We must be found in You, O Lord. And Father, I pray for those who are in Christ, myself and my brothers and sisters here, let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord. Father, You are merciful and You are kind. Were it not for your grace and mercy bestowed upon us, we would be helplessly lost. We thank you for the light of creation. We thank you even more so for the light of the Scriptures. Father, help us to run to the Scriptures, to consider them to be more precious than gold, sweeter even than honey. Help us now in Christ's name we pray. Amen.